If you have the, your Bibles, take them and turn in them to the book of Acts. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the, the seats um, in front of you. If you're in the front row, you're going to be digging for one. Maybe the person behind you, you can tap on the shoulder and they'll give you a Bible if you want one. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to take that home. It's certainly our gift for, for you. And we have a stock that we have in place and we just put them back in there. So uh, you're welcome to take one of those uh, Bibles and, um, and just begin investigating the Word of God for yourself. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 17, and uh, we're going to look at the first uh, nine verses of that this morning, just uh, kind of a brief look at it today, uh, and uh, pray that God will bless our time in his word uh, this morning. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse, uh, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is that Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Father, we thank you now for this opportunity to continue to worship you as we gather around your word. It's such a treasure. It's such a gift that we have. And it's humbling to stand and hope to deliver your word when we sing a song like we've just sing. But Father, I pray that in the midst of all the words that are spoken, that some here today will find Christ. That some here today will find strength in Christ. Some here today will find encouragement in Christ. Some here today will find eternal life in Christ Jesus. We love you, Father. We are thankful that you care so deeply about us and you care for your creation with such faithfulness and steadfast love and such mercy. Bless bless your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are gaps in all of our lives. Um, gaps between the high points or the events that we like to remember. If I were to take a couple moments and share with you a little bit of the history of my life, I could probably cover it off in about five minutes with you this morning. And I could tell you where I was born and uh, different significant highlights of where I lived and uh, places I went to school and other highlights along the way. And that would give you at least some understanding of, of Paul and the movement of my life, sort of a linear progression of my history. If I were to take a few more minutes, I could maybe talk to you about one specific uh, moment in my life when I moved from Saskatoon to uh, Victoria, and I could tell you in the few seconds that it took me to do that, um, when I was 17 years old in 1978, I moved from Saskatoon to Victoria and leave it at that. But there was a whole world that took place between a few months before I moved and a few months after I arrived. The story of that six months is, for me, uh, brutal. 
we come to a story like this in the book of Acts, and we find we jump from one city, Philippi, to another city. And it's important that we take a couple moments to see what fills in the gap. You remember how, um, if you were here last week, we ended at verse 40 of chapter 16. And we understand that at the end of Paul's time in Philippi, that they were thrown in prison. At the end of that time, it says, So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And then verse 1 of 17 says, And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. It's quite easy to miss the gap of movement from Philippi to Thessalonica. But it's important that we at least reflect and understand a little bit about what had taken place in those intervening moments. For one, one it was just a physical um, trauma. Uh, I think maybe that's not too strong a word for them. They had to travel a thousand or a hundred miles. They weren't traveling by car. They weren't traveling by pedal bike. They weren't traveling by motorbike. They weren't even traveling by horseback. They were walking. It's about the equivalent, um, and I checked it out on Google, it's about the equivalent of the return trip from Port Alberni to Nanaimo and back on foot. So we've got here a period of days, if not a week or more, of fairly difficult traveling down the Via Ignatia. I think the second thing, though, that we recognize that's going on during this journey is that two of them that were making this journey were physically wrecked. We read in Philippi how near the end of their time in Philippi, they had ticked off a particular group of people because they had delivered a slave girl from a spirit that had inhabited her and controlled her for so many years. And the spirit had brought great money to her handlers. And so by the power of God, she had been released from that spirit and her handlers were mad because now they had lost their means of income. And so it tells us that a mob was formed. And I don't know if you remember the the riots back in uh, 2011 in Vancouver, they showed them on TV, and uh, it's quite a frightening experience to even watch it unfold on TV. And there are the odd pictures of uh, individuals who tried to stop the rioters from breaking into particular stores or from loitering or looting uh, other places, and they were surrounded by groups of those, and they were kicked and punched and, and, and sorely beaten. Well, that's what happened to Paul and Silas here. They had been surrounded by a group of individuals who were mad, and they had basically kicked the tar out of them. And after the informal beating had taken place, it says that they were submitted then to beating with rods. That was one of the three Roman tortures or punishments that they inflicted upon people. A, a, a strong wooden rod was used to beat people within inches of their lives. It would expose the flesh on their backs. It would break ribs. It would cause enormous damage to them. And so Paul and Silas had been inflicted with this severe beating after being mobbed. And so they are making this journey, a hundred mile journey on the Via Ignatia, bloodied, bruised, probably ribs broken, sore. Added to that, I believe, is the spiritual trauma that they were undergoing. It says that um, they had suffered for their faith. They had suffered because of their passion to tell people about Jesus Christ. And in fact, when Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and in fact, he only writes to them a year later. And you can read that about that in First and Second Thessalonians if you want later on this afternoon. But in um, chapter 2 of First uh, Thessalonians, Paul writes this to the uh, believers there, uh, new believers. But he writes them and he says this, um, For you, sell, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The NIV translates it this way. It said, we had previously been insulted in Philippi, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you about the gospel. I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel like giving up. There are times when I've gone through a particular brutal experience. It's one of those gap experiences, and I'm done. I've never really suffered for physically for the faith, but I think there are times when I've suffered emotionally or mentally for the faith or just for being a Christian. And there are, it was in this time period that I think they were wrestling with God. As they're making this 100-mile journey, they're conversing with God, and they're saying, God, I can't do this again. I can't face another angry mob. I can't face being thrown in prison again. I can't face the trauma and the ridicule that comes from being one of your evangelists, for being one of your followers. I don't want to do this any longer. I'm sure that they were probably filled with a little bit of fear and anxiety. I know none of us really are afraid of losing our life if we're a follower of Christ because we know where we're going to go. But certainly I would rather go in my sleep than go at the hands of those who are angry at me. And so as they're making this journey, they're wrestling with God. And it says, though, that finally that they agreed with the help of God, they would dare to share the gospel. I think that that was a wonderful hundred mile journey. I think there would have been times where they cried together, times where they laughed together, times where they stopped maybe and just knelt down and prayed together. But it was that gap period that they were built up, that they were encouraged and that they were prepared now to go into uh, Thessalonica with the gospel. When they enter uh, Thessalonica, it's, a, it's an amazing city, Thessalonica. You, you, it tells about the two places they stopped, and you think, well, why didn't they stop there? Well, they might have stayed overnight, but um, somehow Paul knew that when it came to church planting, um, places of strategic importance were the best places to plant, plant a church. And Thessalonica was a port city, and it was a, a, a busy trade center, and it was a place from which uh, trade went out all over Europe and all over Asia. And so it made sense that if you could make inroads for the gospel in Thessalonica, then you would, in fact, had reached all of Asia and all of Europe. It's sometimes, uh, you know, as I think sometimes when we think about sharing the gospel with people, sometimes, you know, you, you, you share the gospel with the right person. And it, it's like they have all the connections and they have all the, the people. And if God brings them to faith, then it's like hundreds of people come to faith because of what fans out from that life and their influence. And so we find that taking place in Thessalonica. And in fact, we read in Thessalonians of uh, that very thing happening. Because it said when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, it says that, the, that, they, that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not, only, um, uh, for not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have no need to say anything. In other words, when those new believers engaged in business and traveled all over Europe and all over Asia Minor, they shared Christ. And so it made sense that Paul would set up a a work and try and establish a foothold for the gospel in Thessalonica. I like the the next thing it tells us about Paul. It says right away in Acts uh, chapter um, 17 and verse 2, it says that as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. I want to stop here only for a moment this morning. I probably have more to say on this. Um, and that's actually what preachers say when they don't have anything more to say. But um, it's just a way of making them make you think they have. But I do. But nonetheless, um, it says that, they, uh, that as was his custom, he went to the synagogue in three successive 
Sundays. I think, just let me back up again. What kind of spiritual habits are you forming in your life? I think it's crucial that we establish spiritual habits. For the last three weeks, we've seen one spiritual habit that I think Luke has been driving home to us, where every one of the three examples that he talks about in Philippi, he emphasizes prayer. He says how they had a destination in prayer and that they would go to the place of prayer. They went to meet people in the place of prayer. And I've been encouraging us as God's people to have the discipline of a place of prayer, whether it be at your home or when you think about coming to meet with the church on Sundays, that you think of it as I am coming to the place of prayer. But not only do we have the discipline of the place of prayer, but we have the discipline of being constant in prayer. That in in season and out of season, we are praying. And we saw that when Paul and Silas were in prison and they were suffering, they were beat up. But at midnight, it says that they were praying and they were praising God. And so one of the habits that all of us as young believers, as old believers, should continue to wrestle with is this discipline of prayer. But I think the second thing that Paul is reminding us here that Luke is illustrating for us is the discipline of worship. It says, as was his custom, he would go regularly to the Sabbath. And I think there's a a world that we can learn from that. um, And we won't go back, but you can go and look in the Old Testament and understand what was behind the Sabbath. What was behind this day of rest that God had given to his people? This gift that God had given to his people. It was a gift that we had one day out of seven that was unlike any other day. It was a gift of a day that that one day out of that week, we would focus on heaven, not on earth. That one day of the week, we would focus on rest, not on work. That one day of the week, we would focus on other people, not ourselves. And it's difficult for us initially to see that as a gift. But as you come to more and more understand the gift of one in seven, you begin to praise and thank God that he has given us such an amazing gift. I mentioned um, that that our world is, um, God has made us to, to live in patterns. We have a 24-hour day pattern. Um, we have a seven-day-a-week pattern. We have a sort of 30, 31-day uh, uh, equals a month pattern. And we have a 365-day, give or take a few hours, pattern of a year. And those patterns have been given by God to give us cycles and to give us rest. And, and, and different seasons bring different things into our life. All of us here know what happens. If you try and not sleep for four or five days, you're a mess. And a lot of you campers or, or counselors are going to find that out over the next nine, nine, nine weeks. And it's not good for you. It's like you work on fumes. Our body is not designed to go for more than 16 or 17 hours without seven or eight hours of sleep. God has made us that way. And what we don't understand and what we don't see is that God has also designed us to need one day out of seven where we rest and relax and are refreshed. And I think Paul understood that. And so I just want to leave that with us even this morning. As you think about building spiritual disciplines in your life, that there is a reason why God has given us this discipline of one in seven. It's for your mental health. It's for your spiritual health. It's for your physical health. It's for your emotional health. And so we need to build that pattern into our life. The second thing that we find was a custom of Paul. It says, I believe, as was his custom when he went into the synagogue, and you'll find this throughout Acts, that he found a group of Jews and he would start talking to them. Apologetics was important to Paul. Now, apologetics does not mean you run around telling everybody you're sorry all the time. 
I'm sorry that I'm a Christian. I'm sorry that I go to church. I'm sorry that I have ethics in my life. That's not what apologetics is. Apologetics is a biblical word. It's actually a course that you can take in school as well. But apologetics is a, is a course and it's a way of living as a Christian where you learn how to rationalize your faith. You learn how to communicate your faith. You learn how to tell other people um, what is important to you. And so Paul just went about um, doing apologetics. And there's three words that, that, um, we use, that Luke uses here to explain apologetics. He says in verse 2 that he would go into, on the Sabbath days and he would reason with them. And then the second word it says in that he would explain things to them. And then the third word that it uses, he would prove things to them. All of those words are words that we use when we think about defending our faith or giving a reason for the hope that's within us. One of the primary texts in the scriptures that we look to for helping us understand apologetics is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. There it says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, to give an apology for your faith. To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I think one of the areas where we struggle the most is when we're trying to give a reason for the faith, when we're trying to explain our faith, we become so excited and sometimes so intense about it that we forget to be gentle. We forget to be careful with people. We find that uh, Paul talks about Colossians. He says, when you're talking with outsiders, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. And so when we chat with people about our faith, yes, we reason with them. Yes, we explain. Yes, we prove. Yes, we get intense and it's vigorous, but we do it with gentleness and with carefulness as we're talking with them. Paul used these three words, and let me say very quickly something about each of the three words. The first word is reason. I I appreciate that word, and I hope we all do, because we are rational people. God has made us with minds. And we're expected to use them. And I've said many times in this church that when you come to church here, when you come to meet with the church, we do not expect you to check your brains out when you enter those doors. This is not a place where you get brainwashed. It's not a place where we demand that you think one one way or another. But it is a place where we expect you to use your minds. To think through what it is you're wrestling with. To think through what the what we sing about. To think through what we pray about. To think through what's said from this pulpit. To see if it makes sense. God is a rational God and he's made us rational beings. And so it's important that we understand that when we interact with people. The second word that he uses there is explaining. The word explain means to open. Uh, it's it's the word that we find first used, um, at least in the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3 when um, Satan comes along. And I was chatting with somebody the other day, um, just last night, uh, because we were talking about spiders. And I hate spiders. I hate spiders more than snakes. And um, I, was, I was saying, I wonder why God, uh, why God chose to allow Satan to reveal himself as a snake rather than a spider. It seemed like there would be way more effect if he was a spider. Um, nonetheless, sorry, that's a sidetrack in my head. <laughs> Satan comes along to Adam and Eve, and he tempts them. And he says to them, if you will only eat of this fruit, your minds will be open. Everything will be explained to you, and you will know right from wrong. That is what this word explain means. It means to open up. It's the same word that we confronted about three weeks ago when we were talking about Lydia. 
how she listened to what was being said. She was paying attention to what was being said. And then it said the Lord opened her mind to see Christ. And so we explain people. We reason with them. We explain. And the third word that they used is the word prove. And the word prove is simply a word which means to demonstrate or it means to point out. Um, as a as a dad, we had three boys and um, they were always coming home wanting to make science projects. And I don't think there's any family, at least not that I'm aware of, that at some point one of the science projects is not a, is not a volcano. And um, so I can explain to my kids, well, you know, this is what a, you know, we can make a volcano. And if you mix um, baking soda and vinegar together, it will it will bubble out. But it's another thing to demonstrate it and to actually get the, 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 the baking soda and the vinegar and put them together and just watch it bubble out of the volcano. That's, I think, what it means to, to prove. It means to um, demonstrate from your life what God has done for you, what Christ has done for you. And so all of this is worked in together into what this, this, this apologetics is. And it's the task of every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. I think it's really important, too, to note, though, what Paul also says here, that he says that they were reasoning and explaining and proving from Scripture. We keep talking about that. Scripture is the foundation for our faith. The Word of God is the living Word of God. There is something about Scripture that is not true about any other kinds of words. And so when we're talking with people, we ought not to be afraid of, we ought not to be ashamed of, we ought not to be embarrassed of, we ought not to be forgetful of, we ought always to remember and use the Word of God in our conversations. Because it is the Word of God that brings life. It is the Word of God that transforms a dead and a cold and a dying heart into one that has life. And so Paul used the Scriptures always to speak with people. And at this point, it would have been only the Old Testament. Again, I had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to say about the Old Testament, but we'll leave that for another time. Only to say this, that that I, I heard uh, one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, I was listening to a sermon while I was um, uh, doing my exercises. And, and I do exercise. It might not show it, but I try. But nonetheless, um, he, was, he was talking about the Old Testament and New Testament. And he used this phrase, and I love this phrase. He says, a whole Bible makes a whole Christian. If you choose to neglect all of the Old Testament, I don't like it. I don't understand it. I don't like the God of the Old Testament. It's got nothing for me. What do we need there? You are half a Christian. We need to be acquainted with all of the Word of God so that we can be a whole Christian. And here, what Paul was using, because they didn't have the New Testament there, Paul was going back to the Old Testament and he was going back to the Old Testament to show them Christ. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus Christ is found in the Old Testament? Do you know that he is woven through Moses? He's woven through the Psalms. He's woven through the prophets. There are scripture after scripture after scripture in the Old Testament that tell us about Jesus Christ. And so Paul was using the Old Testament to explain to individuals about Christ. Now, notice what he also says there. He says there that he was using the Scriptures and proving, notice this, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and die and then uh, and to rise from the dead. Just for a moment, that word, it is necessary. That's not a throwaway word. 
It's a word of divine necessity. We find this used um, often uh, in Scripture. And it's it's a word that says this has to happen. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, he says, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Um, it is necessary for somebody to be born again to enter into uh, eternal life. It's not an option. And in fact, behind this word, it is necessary, is the divine will of God. So it's like saying there is no other way this could happen. This is God's will that Jesus suffer, die, and rise from the dead. And so Paul went through the scriptures and again, this, this, and, and I, I wish I could take an hour or an hour and a half with you this morning. And I know many of you are thinking, God, I'm glad you don't. Um, but to start with Genesis and work our way through and look at the scriptures that point to the fact that God has planned to send a savior for us. That woven through the Old Testament is Messiah. The first promise of that is in Genesis chapter 3, 15. And then we work through Genesis into Deuteronomy. And we find in Deuteronomy a prophet that is promised to us. Then you go into the book of Leviticus. And the first seven chapters of Leviticus are all about sacrifices. And you know that Christ is the fulfillment of every single one of those sacrifices. Guilt offerings, peace offerings, votive offerings. Every one of them is fulfilled in the Messiah. And then we could jump to Psalms and we could start in Psalm 2. And we could go to Psalm 16. We could go to Psalm 22. We could go to Psalm 110. We could go to Psalm 102. And then we could jump to Jeremiah. And then we could jump to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, which talk about how the Messiah will be born. The unique characteristics of his personality. The unique characteristics of his person. And then we could jump to Isaiah 53. And we could talk about how this Messiah had to suffer and how they had to die. And then we could go to um, uh, Micah chapter 5 and we could say where this Messiah would be born. That scripture after scripture after scripture points to the fact that God has sent a Messiah. And then we would have to talk about why is it necessary for Messiah to suffer, die, and rise again. And then we would just talk about what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And we would say there that, that Adam and Eve um, um, were unable to obey God. And rather than obey God, they listened to the serpent. And when they ate of that food, God said to them, The day that you eat of this tree, you will die. And ever since Adam and Eve, all of us have been caught up in their sin and in our sin, and we are all subject to death. As far as I know, every single one of us here, at one point, maybe today, maybe in six months, maybe in six years, maybe in 60 years, but every single one of us will die. Why? The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is a terrible need for a Savior. There is some, we need rescue. We need deliverance. We need escape. We need forgiveness. We need to be brought back into a relationship with God. And so God knew that from the foundation of the world. And so he said that he would send a savior that would die in our place, that would pay the penalty for our sins, that would give his life in exchange for our life. So that the power of death over us would be broken. So that the curse that hung over us would be erased. So that we could know what it means 
to be free and clean inside and be in a relationship with God. And the next thing that Paul does, which is so critical here, he says then he used the Old Testament to show that it was necessary for Messiah to suffer, die, and rise again. And then do you notice what he says? And this is so crucial. In the end of verse 3, this Jesus is the Christ. Do you see what he does? He says, first of all, we need a Savior. And God has planned that there be a Savior. And then we, then we say, well, who is that Savior? Some of us, we think, well, it's me. I'll be the Savior. I'll save myself. And we know pretty quick, that's not going to happen. And we might look to Obama and think, Obama's going to save us. And after 10 minutes, we think, that's not going to happen. And put any individual, any person in there, and you know that's not going to happen. So he says, who's going to be that Savior? Paul says, Jesus Christ is that Savior. Loved ones, when we talk with one another, and when we think about this, and when we pray for people, what we need to pray is that not only will they see a need for a Savior in their life, but they will see that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And so Paul was taking his time and he was working with these individuals and he was sharing with them how important it was that they understand what the Old Testament taught about God's provision for a Savior and that provision was met in Jesus Christ. I'll just end with a couple things here. It's the response to this message. And I appreciate this response because I think this is the reality of our lives. This will be the reality of you as you counsel kids at at camp for the next nine weeks or so you will pour your guts out for them you will pray for them you'll have speakers that will speak to them as we do to our family and friends and notice the great encouragement it says here and some of them were persuaded i love that some of them were persuaded our work is not at naught what we do is not futile we might not always see the results but thank god sometimes we do and he says and some of them were persuaded That means some of the Jews listened to what Paul was saying. And as they listened and they used their minds, they realized this makes sense. We need a Messiah. And it's Christ. And it says not only that, but some of the Greeks, the devout Greeks, also believed in Jesus Christ. And and they would have been maybe those that had been coming to synagogue for a number of months and maybe not understood at all and whatnot and didn't know Christ yet, but all of a sudden it made sense for them. And then it said, and also not a few of the leading women. I love that. It's the stretch of the gospel. Men, women, Greek, Jew, slave, free, doesn't matter. The gospel is able to save anyone, anywhere. And so there's great encouragement here that some of them believed. And so as you share the gospel this week, as you share the gospel this summer, there will be some who will receive the word of God and they will say, yes, that's for me. But then we read what he says next. And he says, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob. And here I think, wow. A week earlier, they had another mob and they beat the living daylights out of them. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jacob, Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. They couldn't find them and they dragged them. And some of the brothers, do you notice that? There are already believers there. And some of the brothers, they had probably only been Christians a few weeks. And they were already now part of the persecuted church. Some of these kids that come to faith in Christ over camp this summer, they'll go home and within two or three weeks, they'll start getting it from their mom or dad, from their brothers and sisters, from their friends. That's why we need to pray, beloved. 
We need to pray for the sustaining work of the Spirit of God in the lives of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ so they will grow in the faith. But some people reject the Word of God. We right here that these guys were jealous. Jealousy is such an ugly thing. It's an ugly thing in the kingdom of God. It's an ugly thing in church. It's the ugly, th- ugly thing in camp. It's just ugly. We just have our turf. We have our kingdom. We have our way. We have our followers. We have our people. Don't you touch my people. We get jealous when something good comes along and they get embraced in it. Some people just have a hard, stony, cold heart. One of the words that's used in the Bible is it says that some people have a calloused heart. It, it, it's like we know what it is. I used to work hard. Uh, like, you know, I work one day a week now, so come on. I'm not going to have calluses on my hand. But I used to do, do construction for a lot of years, and I used to get really, really thick calluses on my hands. And I was one of those sick guys that when I'd get home at night, I'd um, and maybe when there was people around, I'd just take um, needles and pins, and I'd stick them through my calluses and kind of show how tough I was. But you can't feel anything, of course, can you? Because it's a callus. And I think sometimes... People have a callous over their heart and, and loved ones and friends and you know, they've been in church and people have kind of woven the word of God through a, with a needle and a string through their heart. And we think, well, they ought to be responding, but they've got a callous in their heart. And they can't, they can't even feel the word of God as it is trying to penetrate that hard, cold heart. But again, this is where I love the word of God because this is what Jeremiah says. Is my word not like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer? That breaks the rock into pieces. The word of God is powerful. And it is able even to smash a hard, cold, stony heart. So that it responds to the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think finally there are autonomous hearts. There are hearts of people that just don't want anything to do with Christ. They like their own lives. I was listening to a, a, um, a sermon by Mark Driscoll. And I wish I could find um, this someday. But... I guess they're in the middle of commissioning a, a company to go through Seattle on their behalf and ask people that are 18 to 45, um, why they don't go to church? And he snuck out in one of his sermons uh, uh, one of the reasons why. And he says, you know, one of the reasons that we are finding out already as we're getting some of the results back from the survey is that there are lots of people who know about Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in what he's done, but they just don't want anything to do with him. They just don't want nothing to do with him. That's an autonomous heart. That's somebody who says, you know, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody controlling my life. I don't want anybody telling me what I have to believe and what I don't have to believe. I don't want anybody controlling me. What a lie that is. Because if Christ isn't controlling you, sin is controlling you. But the gospel is able to even break the conviction of an autonomous heart. And so, loved ones, as we go out this week, may we go out with... This conviction that everybody that we talk to that is outside of Jesus Christ needs to know that there's a Savior. They need to know that Jesus Christ is that Savior. We ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. We ought not to be ashamed of the word of God. We ought to be careful and gentle and reasonable and gracious. But we ought to be willing to reason and explain and prove to people what the word of God says. And as we do that, the word of God will crash into their worlds and hopefully draw them out of themselves to see Christ as their Savior. Let's pray. 